If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Rachel Archambault. She's a nationally recognized SLP who specializes in trauma-informed care. Rachel found TIC after experiencing a traumatic traumatic event at work on February 14, 2018. She was looking for ways to help her students who had just undergone trauma as well as herself. She realized that not only would this help for those specific students, but that trauma-informed care could be applied to any setting, any population, and with any age group. As an SLP, she offers a unique perspective to how trauma-informed care falls under her professional scope of practice, as well as for other healthcare professionals and educators, including teachers, nurses, OTs, PTs, doctors, paraprofessionals, administrators, etc. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. All right. Good afternoon, Rachel. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here finally. Yeah, I know we had to reschedule a few times. We had a calamity of events, but luckily Rachel is trauma informed and understand when life <laughs> traumatic, traumatic turn. So thank you for your kindness and patience, my friend. I'm glad to finally get you on. I'm excited to see you. Yeah. So tell the people a little bit about yourself if they don't know you. 
Sure. So my name is Rachel Arshambo. I am a speech pathologist. I think I'm in my eighth year right now as a speech pathologist. Uh, I'm from South Florida. I went to school in Central Florida and then made my way back down to South Florida. And my area is trauma-informed care. And that's not something that I learned in grad school. It's not something that I learned in undergrad. It was due to experiencing a traumatic event at work as a speech pathologist that I looked into trying to find a way to work with the community that had undergone trauma. And I found trauma-informed care. And I was able to see the message of trauma-informed care through the lens of a speech pathologist, through the lens of someone who worked in a school system where trauma happened, but also as someone who's worked in medical settings as a speech pathologist and seeing how it's applicable wherever you're working, whatever setting you're working in, whatever profession you are, if you're working with humans, you should be trauma-informed. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I, I w- one thing I'll, I'll say, I know I did a podcast, maybe it was like a, maybe two years ish ago. I wish I, I'll have to go back and find the exact podcast, but I was explaining such, you know, things that I had gone through with my son and, and, you know, his whole, my whole prenatal experience with him was so horrific. And then having him in the NICU for so long. And somebody said, that just sounds so traumatic. Like I'm sure that's made a difference in the way you, you know, provide services as an SLP is being really like trauma-informed care. And I was like, I've never heard that term before. And I probably sounded so stupid on my own podcast saying, I've never heard of trauma-informed care. But once we got off the podcast, I started looking into it and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is exactly what I've right. And And what was interesting was I had talked about maybe two different specialists that we worked with in the NICU that really changed my entire trajectory, changed my entire mindset around my son and they, they, I will forever be grateful that they were in my life at that time. And then I also, there's one doctor that I wish very bad things for that did not, that, that made the experience brutal. And, and I, it makes such a difference in the way you go through something, the way you experience something and the way you remember that experience as being taking it for what it was and, and framing it as a positive experience or just remembering it as the worst traumatic experience that it ever was. And so I'm excited to talk about this topic, not excited, but I am. I'm yes. Yes. Because I think, you know, what I was just telling you is we work in healthcare, we work in hospitals, we work in nursing homes and nobody's there because they, because they had the best day ever. Um, they're there because something happened to them and, and it's, it's up to us. It's a huge part of what we do. And I, I don't think we get enough. Like you said, you got no training on this in graduate school. I had a counseling class, but I don't think it really went this deep into what our patients are going through and how we can help contribute to that and not add to the trauma that they've already been through. Yeah, I'm actually seeing a lot of the newbie SLPs, the ones that are in grad school right now. They have counseling classes and their teachers have been incredible. Like they asked me to come out and speak or a virtual presentation on the section of trauma-informed care. I think they're getting more exposure to it and they're seeing me on Instagram. I have PTSD SLP as my account, but people of all levels or SLPs of all levels are the ones that are reaching out to me saying, I need to know more about trauma-informed care. And I think the question has, I mean, last year was a huge year for me professionally, but I think that was also because we were just kind of coming out of COVID, that a lot of people recognize the mental health concerns of their patients. They recognize the mental health concerns of them, themselves, and they need more information on trauma-informed care. So I'm happy to see more people asking about it before they hit rock bottom, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So where should we start? Where should we dive in first? One of the things when I present, I talk about how the systems in place above us need to be trauma-informed for us as SLPs to be trauma-informed. 
So for example, working in a certain setting and they required 90% productivity or 95% or 75, you know, whatever their amount of productivity is, that binds us from being able to be a fully trauma-informed professional. Because if I am with a patient that's having a really hard time understanding something or having a really hard day, I'd like to sit with them for a little bit longer and ask them questions. And not there's not a list of trauma-informed questions, but it's Basically, trauma-informed care is providing the six pillars of trauma-informed care, which are safety, choice, collaboration, mutuality, trust and transparency, cultural, historical, and gender issues. So in my sessions, I'm trying to provide aspects of all of those things. So if I have a patient who's having a really tough day, but then I'm bound by the 90% productivity of, oh, sorry, you got to go see a client because I'm going to get dinged on this by my DOR or whoever it is that's above me tracking that part of it, or my pay is affected by the productivity, I can't be a trauma-informed professional. So that's why when I'm speaking to these rehab units or I'm talking to a hospital system, I encourage the administrators to think differently about what that productivity standard actually does to patient care. Yeah. How do you, and I, I love that we're talking about this right now, a few different things come to mind. How do you start that conversation with them? Because all they're thinking of is is numbers, 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 bottom line, you know, our SLPs have to be working at this level. But I think there's two things. I think it revolves really, it involves really a culture shift in that the productivity model was not created for SLPs. It was created for PTOT rehab specialists. And what we really provide is almost a consult service in that we should not be bound by these these measurements that weren't created for us. And, and there's so much that, that obviously is a much deeper conversation. But can you talk to me a little bit about how you start that conversation with administration and getting them to, to maybe consider that this isn't the best model and that there is a better way that can provide better patient care and can get better patient outcomes? So I think it comes down to the people who are working there. And I know sometimes it's a very uncomfortable conversation, depending on who the administrators are. I'm not sure what your relationship is with with the people above you, but that's the part of uh, trauma-informed care. So number one, I recommend that the hospital settings or wherever setting you're working in gets trained in trauma-informed care as a setting because they will find answers on how they need to treat their employees for the best patient outcomes. That is one step of it. The second step is collecting data. We're a data-driven field in a lot of ways, but we can show examples of, hey, if I didn't have productivity in this instance, I could have sat with this client for 20 more minutes, 15 more minutes, and the, the family members We could have explained this better, but instead what happened was they didn't understand the directions given to them in the short amount of time. The patient ended up back in the hospital and shortly died. Examples like this are tough for them to hear, but it's also so necessary for them to hear an example of how it all stems back to trauma-informed care because by reducing the productivity standards from 90 to say 70%, 75%. And there's a lot of people out there that say what is an acceptable amount of productivity um, or a different model in general. By explaining certain situations that arise from this, they are better able to understand how that affects them, how that affects their wallet as a hospital system or wherever they're working. And 
hopefully just as a human, because it really does take that human component. Um, and it's always going to be like this money driven thing. Like how can we get the most bang for our buck? Um, and they have to put that aside in some ways and say, how can we keep our patients safe? How can we foster trust and transparency? How can we foster trust and transparency with our employees who are seeing these major errors or not necessarily errors, could be errors, but just not doing the best patient care that we know that we can. And thank you for bringing that up. I think, you know, we're, we're finally starting to switch the narrative a little bit here in that, in that so many facilities or, or healthcare centers are driven by these patient safety quality numbers or rehospitalization rates, and, and that affects their bottom line. But these are the, the sort of core principles that we have to learn about our facilities to be able to speak that language, because what you're talking about absolutely would contribute to patient safety, patient quality, uh, the reported outcome measures that we want, rehospitalization rates. If we can spend the time to educate them, explain to them what's going on, the why behind it, like you said, talk to the family some more too. I think some of my biggest quote unquote success stories of working with patients in the, in the nursing homes, you know, getting them off of feeding tubes all the way to mm-hmm. Thanksgiving dinner was because I spent a lot of time with the families and, and I explained you know, some things might have to be done at the table. Some things might not. Some things can be exercises. Some things, and there's there's just a lot more that goes into it than just a, you know, 30-minute session of exercises. So I think it's a combination of knowing what those factors are that are going to make your administration tick combined with, with what you said. So so thank you. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is that there was a, a few months ago at, at the hospital I was working at, there was, um, I can't remember what position she was. I, I think she was maybe like a Oh, she's palliative, palliative care doctor. Um, and there was just a really high profile case in the, in the hospital. Um, really, really sad case. And, and the, the doctor just came up to everybody at the morning meeting and just said, I'm just letting you all know that I am with this patient and this family the entire day. Please do not call me about another patient unless it's absolutely an emergency. I will get to everybody else tomorrow. Please do not bother me about productivity. Do not, but like she, and I, I was like, Oh my gosh. Like I, I was so proud of her for sa- wow. saying that, but she was like, I am going to be with this family this entire day. And that is all I'm committed to. Um, and I was like, wow, that's, and, and hospital administration was like, yes, please, you know, do what, do what you need to do. And, and, you know, we'll regroup tomorrow. We'll regroup next week, whatever it was. But um, I just thought that was really powerful and that, that she understood her role and she knew how vital she was. And, you know, now you, you we hear stories on the news of this patient's family talking about, how the, the facility was so wonderful and how the people that worked closely with her were so wonderful and just made the experience not as traumatic as it was, you know, you can see the, the some rainbows inside of it. So I think it just definitely a long way. Yeah. And it, it sounds like the administration was supportive in, in that just saying, yeah, like, yes, do whatever you have to do. And that is a trauma informed outlook. When you have the administration, the doctors, the staff fighting against each other of like, I'm going to do this. And they say, well, you're going to get punished for this in some way. That's not trauma-informed because what is the staff member's goal is to increase patient care, increase understanding, all of these things. And they should trust us as professionals, as people, as coworkers to make the best decisions for the people that we're supporting. So I think that's how it's all part of a system that we all have to be trauma-informed and I know you and I talk about trauma in, in many ways. A lot of people get to trauma informed care after experiencing a trauma that they go, Oh, I get it now. And the reason that I speak on trauma informed care is I want people to understand what trauma informed care means before they have to go through a trauma themselves in order for them to understand what trauma informed care looks like. 
Yeah. Thank you for that. So in the world of trauma-informed care, depending on what website you look at, you might have anywhere from three pillars of trauma-informed care to 12. And the pillars of trauma-informed care are just kind of tenants, things that we need to consider when working with people. And I also use trauma-informed care in my personal life as well, especially sometimes in my personal life. I just went out to breakfast with a friend of mine from grad school, actually, that had a baby, a one-year-old. And then the other one is just getting into trying for a baby. And I'm sitting there looking at this conversation through a trauma-informed lens, seeing the anxiety of someone who has not had a kid before that it's weighing on them. Can I have a kid? And then the one that has is saying a lot of things that are intended to be comforting, but I can see they are stressing out my friend. So understanding trauma-informed care has to do with the pillars. So number one is providing safety. So in that conversation, I'm thinking about, does my friend feel safe? Do both of them feel safe? Do I feel safe? And it's also applying to our jobs. How can we make ourselves, number one, feel safe? Um, How do our employers make us feel safe in the job? And then how do we make our patients, our clients, our guests, how do we make them feel safe? That is the number one thing for me. And especially because safety was what was broken in my case of experiencing trauma at work was this, the physical safety was broken. The emotional safety was also gone. So if we can provide that as providers, no matter for speech, PT, OT, whoever we are, we can try our best to provide safety to the individuals that we are working with. And that is my number one priority. Then we go to trust and transparency. That I think plays an even bigger role in the people that are above us. And if we as providers have trust in what our administrators are doing, trust and transparency goes both ways. We feel like they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, we feel supported by them. But when things are done not transparently, the trust starts to break. So if they have this big decision in the hospital that ends up affecting us, and then it's just told to us one day in a big meeting, we haven't been warned about it. We start asking ourselves questions like, how long did they know about this? What what was their intention of doing this? Why are they doing this? If we already have a good trust relationship with our employers, we're not going to think negative thoughts about why this decision was made. We also need to do the same for our patients that we're working with. We want to provide trust. We want to provide transparency. Um, I can't tell you how many times that I've worked in the medical setting that we're doing an activity or one of the other providers is doing an activity with their client. And the client says, like, why are we doing this? And they say, don't worry about it. We only have five more to go. Yeah. And we think of that number one, because of productivity that we're just like, boom, 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 we got to keep going. But I think of it from a trauma-informed lens that this person that we are working with loses trust in us. Mm -hmm. They're not understanding why they're doing the activity that we chose or what it's for. And we need to spend the time to explain to them what they're doing, even if we've done it a few times and you're going to have people that we work with that are asking you every three seconds. Um, but, But they do deserve to know. And maybe you can prepare ahead of time for the questions that are going to be asked. You can print out like a little thing that says we are doing this activity because so that they can refer to that. 
little, little things that we can do to foster trust and transparency. Peer support is another one. Our coworkers, the people that we work with, they all have to kind of buy into this trauma-informed care thing. Because if I'm the only one doing trauma-informed care, yet the SLP that works the next day that I'm not working isn't doing trauma-informed care, we might go back and forth between, oh, I'm not causing trauma. Now this person might be causing trauma. And it's not super helpful. Collaboration and mutuality, that's super important. We need to be collaborating with not only the family members, our clients. We need to see what their goals are. I remember working in one of my jobs that it was an old school provider. I think it was occupational therapy. And she wrote a goal for a patient about learning how to sew. And I asked her, like, was that a goal of this patient? Was that something that she had done before? Like, where did this goal come from? And it was just like, no, I think like women should be able to sew. Um, and that's something that she can do now that she's not working and everything. And I was just like, whoa, that was a unilateral decision for this person. And no wonder she, this client is not buying into this goal. Why, why does she have to sew? Are there any other functional activities that we can still target the same occupational therapy thing? But with the goals that she already has, maybe she wants to write her grandkids birthday cards or something like that. We need to be able to investigate what our clients are looking for. This is all part of trauma-informed care. Yeah, that's that's so important. I, I, I'll i never forget it. I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, too. We had an SLP that came into work with my son and... She was like, well, these, these are the goals that we're, we're going to do this, 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 and this. And I was like, I, that doesn't really work with our family dynamic. Like I'm not, and those really, those things don't really bother us. And she's like, well, this is how every family should function. This is, this is how wow. the family sit around the table and have meals together. And I was like, I'm glad you think that. And I would love that for our family, but that's not really what my son tolerates with his sensory issues too. So we've found a way that actually does work for our family. Um, and it's, it was just, I was so turned off by that. Like I, you know, we ended up stop working with her because it was just, she was just pushing her values on us, which I, okay. But the, I, I specifically said, that's not going to work for our family. And the pushback that I got, I was just really surprised at. And that leads right into the next pillars, empowerment, voice, and choice. So me as the SLP, as a trauma-informed professional, writing that goal, I would be like, maybe this family doesn't, isn't able to sit together. And I would ask more questions of like, what does your dinner time look like? What does your meal time look like? And empowering the family to make those decisions for themselves and not say, this is what should be done based on my recommendations or whoever's recommendations. So we need to be empowering the voice and choice of the families that we're working with and our patients. So that's super important. And just like the example that you gave, that is an example of, of a provider not prioritizing that pillar and causing harm. It might not cause trauma. It could altogether be trauma um, or that instance could be traumatic. But what it does is make you not want to work with this person and not get your kids' goals met. Like, yeah, and, and to be honest, like it was, it was almost traumatic because it was like great. Like the the people that you think mm-hmm. you have glimmers of hope, right? When you're in these situations that people tell you are hopeless or that you know your child's never going to get better, and then you find these specialists that you think can help you. 
but then they tell you that what you're doing is totally wrong and that, you know, when you say, well, that dynamic doesn't work for us and they fight you on it, you know, that was, that was really traumatic for me to just say, great, you know, now we're back at square one again, because I don't want to work with this person because they don't like our family dynamic, but clearly we're not going to make any progress, you know, and, and that does stink. It really is like a a burner to think that, you know, I, I had a lot of hope. And like I said, glimmers of hope that, that this person would be able to help our family out. And in turn, it just turned into a really cruddy situation. Right. And there's another level of us being speech pathologists that when we work with another one, we hope that there's that connection there or that we understand it better. And I I understand why that's such a stressful moment. And that's something that I try to avoid when I'm working with clients and families. Like I want to make sure that I hear them for what their goals are. Like it's not just, oh, when you go home, you should be doing this. It's, hey, what are your goals when you go home with your kid, when you go home with your father? What does this look like? So that is a major one. And then the last one is cultural, historical, and gender issues. And that kind of plays into that same example that you gave of just our cultural differences might be different than the people that we're treating. The historical differences might be different than the people that we are working with. And then the gender issues as well. All of these things are important to consider that we are not putting our lives and our experiences and the people that we are working with. Um, an example I posted on my Instagram like two years ago, maybe, um, in the hospital system, an OT was talking about using a bucket for hygienic needs, um, like water in a bucket for toileting. And when you go into a hospital system, especially in the Western world, it's, oh no, we use toilet paper. We use toilet tissue. We, this is what we do here. But it's not being trauma-informed to say, oh, now you are going to be using this because this is what we have access to. We need to be understanding of other cultures saying this is what's comfortable to them. This is going to be a traumatic experience to take away something that makes them feel clean and saying, no, this is the only right way to do things. How can we help them access something that makes them feel clean? How can we teach them, whether that's occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech, how can we teach them to advocate for themselves and what their needs are? So these are the things that we need to take into consideration, which sometimes just the medical system is so fast and we don't have the time or they don't have the time, but we need to be advocating for our patients as well as advocating for ourselves when things are not trauma-informed. So those are the six guiding principles in a nutshell. And They're things that we need to be considering when working with other humans of how can we not cause additional harm or trauma? I I found the best um, OB after I had my son. She actually took over like in the ninth month of when I had him. And then I went back to her when I had my daughter. And after I had my daughter, you know, I just, it was like, I I didn't want to be in the hospital, right? Like I wanted to have my daughter and I wanted to get out of there because I just had Mm -hmm. floods of when he was born. My daughter's birth was totally fine. It was, you know, it was fine, but it was like, I had her, the doctor came in and she's like, how are you doing? And I was like, I, you know, I'm good. Everything's good. And, and I was like, when can I go home? And she's like, well, you know, honey, insurance will pay for two, three nights here. Like, don't you just want to stay and, you know, get pampered on by the nurses. And I was like, no, I I want nothing. I want to get out of here. I want nothing to do with this place. And she's like, oh, okay. And I was like, you know, everything I've been through. And she's like, okay. And she's like, technically you're supposed to stay 24 hours. And I go, I want out of here. And she was like, 
I, I understand you. I know what you've been through. I will write you discharge papers earlier. And she's like, you do have to bring the baby back to meet with the pediatrician tomorrow. Are you okay with that? And I was like, yes, I just don't want to be here. And like that, if if she made me stay there, she's like, well, I'm going to have to fight insurance for them to keep you yeah. here for a few days. And I was like, please do it. I don't care. And and I was so happy that she just took that. And like, I mean, she just wrote a simple letter to insurance and they accepted it and it was, it was all fine. But I, I can't imagine that experience that I had to stay in a hospital that was so traumatic to me the first time if I had was just locked in. I couldn't imagine. Like I thought of that and I was yeah. like, I can't stay here one more. Like I can't be here. Like, <laughs> yeah. And it's really interesting to see certain professions, I, I think, are way farther ahead in trauma-informed care than we are. And one of those being like anything to do with babies. But what, what's interesting is I also find some of the worst offenders of not being trauma-informed care are in that field as well. And I just it's interesting because I think that field especially needs to be much more trauma-informed than many other professions need to be, especially like gynecology, like they are dealing with very sensitive places and people that have possibly undergone trauma for places that will be examined. And if these professions are not trauma-informed, real harm comes out of that, like immediate. And our profession is just as valid to be trauma-informed, that we can cause real harm in whatever setting we're working with, um, I primarily work full-time in a school system, but I also have worked medical over all the years. And even though my trauma happened in a school, I can see through a trauma-informed lens how different experiences that I've had in all of these different medical settings could have been better using trauma-informed care or people above me using trauma-informed care and instances in which things weren't trauma-informed. And it's just now my brain is always on trauma-informed care, which is a lot sometimes, but it's also, I feel like I reduce the risk of hurting people because I'm so aware of being trauma-informed. Yeah. And I, and I can just say, you know, to go, I know I don't mean to keep like bringing up OBs, but like to go back to the doctors that I went through when I was pregnant with my son and and how horrific the words that they said to me about my son and about what I should do with him and all these things. And and that was why I ended up talking to a few friends and they said, you need to go to this OB. She's the kindest, most, mm-hmm. she, she's worked with some really crazy situations. She will, she will be there for you. And, and that couldn't have been more true. You know, I showed up and I just said, I'm 37 weeks pregnant, but I want to switch my OB because I'm terrified of that other person. And it makes just all the difference in the world. And and so to to, to tie that to speech pathology. I know there's so many patients that I've worked with when I was doing fees in the nursing home so much that I would just go and like, you know, what are your goals? What do you want to eat? What's important to you? And so many times it just, it was like such a punch to the gut when they were like, you're the first SLP that's asked me like what I want to eat. Everybody that's come in has told me I can never eat or I'll be on a feeding tube for the rest of my life. Or, you know, I'll, I'm just constantly at a risk of aspiration and I could, I could die if I try to eat something. You're the first person that came in and flipped the script and said, you know, what are my goals and what do I want this to look like? And and not that I was missing that, but I wanted to see what was important to them to see if we could get there and what steps we could take to bridge that gap to, you know, even if it was a few sips of water to start, what can we do to give them a little glimmer of hope that I'm there to help them? And I'm not there to just say, if you eat that, you'll die. Like, that's not what we do. Right. And I mean, that cultural aspect is so important. And throughout all of these medical settings. But I even was thinking about 
when we have different religions in different areas, there was a big Jehovah's Witness population in the area that I was working in in grad school. And I remember hearing the medical professionals say in our nursing area that all all this guy has to do is have a blood transfusion. I don't get why he's not doing it. And that is a major tenant of that religion is you can't have blood transfusion. So it was just the way that he was spoken to was like, you are choosing the wrong thing. This is a dumb thing to like, you know, die over that it's so easily fixable. And thinking about that conversation now is just, I, I mean, disgusting, but it, it's just not trauma informed because there's a lot of things that we could say, you should be doing this because I feel this way, or I, this is the solution here. There are better ways that we can maybe address this client and say, you can take a more trauma informed approach to having that discussion without saying, okay, well, you're choosing death or, you know, things like that, that will traumatize that, that experience for the family, for that patient. And he might die. The goal is to make sure that he doesn't like we want to keep him alive. So it's so many things to consider, but it's so important to be trauma informed, especially in our field. Yeah. What, what steps do you think SLPs can take, Rachel? Like you said, you, you suggest every healthcare, you know, facility, you know, take these courses. And I, and I totally get that and support that. Are, are there websites you would consider? How, how does someone, if like they listen to this podcast today and they're like, oh my gosh, I need to know more about this. What am I doing wrong? Where would you send them or what would you suggest? Sure. So the first place that I would send most people to just kind of get an easy intro into trauma-informed care is there's a book by Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry called What Happened to You. And the whole premise of this book is changing the phrasing that we use of what's wrong with that person to what happened to them. So Mm -hmm. this book, I recommend the audiobook if possible. And I know most of us drive a lot and we listen to audiobooks and podcasts. That is such a well-produced book of just like little examples. And we know that Oprah is someone who has been very open about their traumatic experiences growing, uh, growing up and throughout her life. She does this with Dr. Bruce Perry, who is one of the world's leading researchers on childhood trauma. So he's able to take a lot of things and analyze it through his point of view. It sounds like a conversation. It's much easier than some of the other books about trauma-informed care, which people don't want to get through because it's heavy on like the brain terminology or it's just like really heavy examples. I find this to be a good introduction book. So it's called What Happened to You by Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry. Once you look at that, there's so many resources online. A lot of what I get my information from is SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse Mental Health Association. They have so many research papers, um, especially the 2014 one is like their big booklet about trauma-informed care. In that booklet, it talks about how organizations can be trauma-informed, which is so helpful. It should be essential to anyone who's operating a business. Those are places that I would start with it. You can see who's offering trainings. I know most medical systems, they do have people that they can go to, whether it's the health department, the the state department, they have trainings in trauma-informed care. I'm always available to do trauma-informed trainings virtually in person. Um, And I think sometimes it does help having someone who is outside of the network. If it's someone in the own organization talking about trauma-informed care, 
from a trauma-informed provider, I don't know what their relationship is with the rest of the staff that they're training. Could be a positive one. It could be a negative one. But that will not help the situation to have someone who is not trusted, who is not supported, teaching other people about trauma-informed care. So it's sometimes better to have someone from the outside come in, in my experience. But there's a lot of research out there, thankfully. Um, there's a lot happening in the field of speech pathology. I know that at ASHA this year, there were a lot of us talking about trauma-informed care, which I'm super happy about. And also in different areas. So there was a voice trauma-informed one. There was little areas. So it gets even more individual to what you need. But I think it's really important just to see who's talking about trauma-informed care, looking up some of the, the research for your field, for your setting, and seeing how you can apply it in your area. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rachel. Of course. Any Any final thoughts? Anything else you want to cover? I guess where they can find me. Yeah, yeah. My Instagram is PTSD SLP. I have a website that I made earlier this year. It's also PTSD SLP.com. Please feel free to reach out to me via email. You can message me on Instagram if you have one. Um, I also have a Facebook page of the same name for those of you that don't have Instagram, which is fine. Um, but yeah, please ask me about any questions that I love to talk about trauma in general. Any questions that you might have? Uh, yeah, I'm available anytime. Thank you for, I don't know why I feel it's appropriate to say this, but like, thank you for making your mess, your message. I feel like that's the most appropriate thing to say, because I think what you've been through is just absolutely horrific. And for you to, to rise from the ashes of that, to speak and to use your tools and your gifts to help all of us as SLPs and to be able to help our patients is just such a huge ripple effect. So thank you for being you and thank you for leaning into that work. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.